Right. Nearly there. Okay, you've all got your tables ready. Good stuff. So, we've had um, some beautiful baptism services recently, and we had one scheduled for today, and I was going to speak a little bit around baptism and the story that it tells. So what I've done is I've, I've tweaked the sermon slightly, but I've stayed on topic. I think, I think it's a really good opportunity for us to look a little bit more closely at that story that believers' baptism, baptism tells and, and spend a little bit of time celebrating, celebrating that. And I think it's fitting coming straight out of our series on Mark and before we go into our next series to just dwell around what actually was accomplished at the cross when Christ poured out all of himself and, um, and what it means to be saved. What was this great victory of his? So what is this story of baptism, of believer's baptism? And, and in a nutshell, it's really tightly packed into that in a nutshell, is the whole story of redemption. It tells the story of God's plan for restoration of everything, everything that he has created, and his plan to put it all right again, the way it was when he created it and looked at everything and said, it is good. It is good. It's the story of how that is restored. And it's a story of how very soon on the it is good turns to it is very, very bad because of what man chooses to do when tempted by Satan. And it's the story of how God intervenes, intervenes on our behalf to, to make it right, not just for us, but for all of creation and to make all things good again. And he sends his own son he sends his own son who is God to identify with us and to become one of us and then to take our place under the wrath of God, which we rightly deserve, to take our place there so that we don't have to. And today I'm going to look at some aspects of that story and I know I'm going to zoom in quite close and I know there's so much more that we could talk about, but I've got half an hour, so give me some grace and let me zoom in on this one bit, which I think is fundamentally important and so can, can cause us so much joy and so much security, especially when we're in the face of challenges. And I know I'm talking to an audience and we've got, we've got Stuart and Melanie sitting here and, and they've got real challenges. And I know there's others of you that are struggling with some real challenges in your life. And I, I believe that this can help you in that. So listen to it. And I, I pray that through listening, your heart will be stirred and you'll be overjoyed at what Christ has done. But I also pray that your mind will be challenged. I have no doubt that there's some things that I'm going to say that you will object to. All I ask you to do is to consider whether your objection is based on your own sentiment or societal um, influences or if your objection is based on what the Bible actually teaches about God and his relationship with us. Test your objections. Test your feelings against what I'm going to say. And I'm also praying that it will cause your will to be empowered to push deeper into your relationship with him. 
That's what salvation is, those three things, a challenging of yourself and changing, an influencing of your will to become more like him and to spend more time in his presence, and a stirring of your heart to be passionate about things that you, you once were not passionate about. So I've titled this preach, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's good, isn't it? I thought that was very clever. I mean, it's like, I've got how many D's in there? And it actually is logical, it makes sense. But it's not my title. So I can't actually take credit for it. It's the name of a, a treatise which was written nearly 400 years ago by a man by the name of uh, John Owen. And it was written as a, a defense of the reformed understanding of the extent and certainty of Christ's saving work. It was extremely detailed and thorough. Um, and yes, young people, people wrote books 400 years ago. And there's some great, great books that you can read. So um, I would recommend that you get hold of a, 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 a copy of John Owen's The Death of Death and The Death of Christ. I'm not going to go into the depth that he did. And if you love reading Old English, or perhaps you can get it in Latin, um, and you, you love going through a lot of scripture references to justify every point made, then that's the book for you. Otherwise, um, there are plenty of other books that are based on John Owen's work and defend the same thing that are more contemporary in focus and perhaps a little bit easier to digest. Just ask one of us and we'll help you find those. But as I say, it's a remarkable work. It goes into great depth. And to read the summary of it, what it actually addresses is it, it, it's written to show that in the death of Christ, salvation of sinners was actually accomplished. And it's important that actually, in the death of Christ, the salvation of sinners was actually accomplished. That Christ came to earth to seek and to save those who were lost, and through his oblation, that's a great word, isn't it? I even, I tried to look that up in Google, and it wouldn't let me. It went to oblation. So for those of you in the NHS, you know what an oblation is, but this is oblation, and this is a religious word. It literally means offering, but it means like a, a pouring out, a complete pouring out or emptying of oneself in a way that is fitting for a religious offering. So that's what ablation means. Through his ablation, being the entire humiliation of not just his death, his life and his death. So he came to pour out his life and his death as an offering to secure the salvation of the lost. And it continues to say he has perfectly secured, perfectly secured the redemption of those for whom he died. Therefore, the salvation of sinners was completely secured through the death of Christ. And that is where I want us to land today. That's as much as I'm going to refer back to John Owen's work, but that's where I want us to land today. Christ's work through the humiliation of his life and his death has perfectly secured your salvation. Not just a possibility. He didn't just make a way, he didn't just build a bridge that you could choose to cross if you wanted to, he made it a certainty, he achieved it perfectly and eternally, and it was by him and his work alone. 
nothing to do with your will or your ability to do what's right or even see what the right thing is to do or to make the right choices. He did it all. He saved you perfectly and eternally forever, and he will never let you go. Amen? Amen. Can we end there? We can just go straight into worship because I just get overjoyed at that thought. The fact that my salvation is not dependent on my ability to keep doing what God has commanded me to do, but completely rests in the complete work of Christ, which happened 2,000 years ago, just overjoys me. So to get there, I need to look at a few things. What has Jesus actually saved us from? So I'm going to dig into that a bit more, because it's difficult for us to understand how good the good news is if we don't understand what our true condition is. I've come across this many times. We talk, I talk to, to people who aren't Christians, and I talk about how good Christ is and, and how he's saved us. And the first thing they ask is, well, saved us from what? I mean... I mean, I know the, the world isn't perfect, and I know, that, know there's rough stuff going on, but I'm pretty happy with my life. I'm not sure I need rescuing. We need to be made aware of what the good news has come in, in, instead of. What is the true condition that he is rescuing us from? And then I'm going to look a little bit at how the saving work happens. So firstly, that this fact that he acts conclusively and successfully he doesn't just make it possible, but he actually saves us. We're going to look a little bit at the fact that he compels us. That's a good word, eh? Compels. It's not like he suggests or recommends. He actually makes us do this. He doesn't command us to. He makes us do this. He compels us to identify with him in his death and resurrection. We are to be seen by God and the world as new creations. Not just one, but be seen by God and the world as new creations, no longer living according to our will or in our power, but in his. So we're going to look a little bit at what we were going to do today, water baptism and the, the idea of sanctification and the, work, the idea of working out your salvation daily. And then we're going to look at how he empowers us to do this. He empowers us to do this um, to become more like Christ, we are filled. We are filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to accomplish the will of God. All of these things are part of the saving work of Christ. All three of them. So let's, let's go straight back to the beginning. And um, I'm just going to read. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go to Romans 5. And um, I'm going to read from verse 8, just two verses, 8 and 9. But God shows his love for us. In the, the, new, in the King James Version, it says, but God commandeth his love for us, which is far more forceful, I think, than shows. Shows is like not really decisive, whereas commandeth is, I'm actually pushing my love towards you. I command my love towards you. Um, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath 
of God, not saved from any of our pet hates, but saved from the wrath of God. So God created everything. Back to that short story I told you at the beginning. And he declared it good. And then Satan came and he tempted Eve. And Eve tempted Adam. And Adam and Eve together decided to do something. They decided to not listen to God. And all of a sudden, the perfect union between God and man was broken. And the Bible says that a darkness and a shame came over Adam and Eve. They hid themselves from God. They covered themselves. They were suddenly aware of their nakedness, their true condition before God. And that relationship was broken forever. I'm not going to go into the detail. You can go and read Genesis. But they were separated, sent out of the Garden of Eden, and all of creation was cursed. So often we say that Jesus forgives us of our sins, and that's the good news. Jesus forgives us of our sins. And the kind of thing that we think about when, when we say that is, um, is that he forgives us for some of the naughty things that we do. You know, it's sort of like I, th- I thought about my mate's girlfriend. Um, or I was tempted to Google the answers to a test on my phone under my desk, or I actually did. Or uh, I was super angry at my boss and intentionally undermined them in a meeting. Or I gambled, or I drank too much, or, or, or. And Jesus just kind of says, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'll, I'll forgive you. Let's, let's, just, let's just forget about it. Actually, Jesus doesn't turn a blind eye to our sins. On the contrary, his saving work is actually there to progressively change our nature and to stop us sinning. It's actually there to to change the way we feel, to change the way we think, to change the way we prioritize, the way we act. In all the things that we value and treasure, it's there to to change those things. And he's busy changing it all the time in us. But anyway, those are the kinds of things we think about when when we say sins. All these naughty little moral things that we get wrong on a daily basis. What What Jesus actually came to overthrow on the cross was something far more serious than these things. These things are a symptom of the very serious thing that Jesus came to overthrow. Jesus came after sin with a big S, not sin with a little s. He came after a a condition. And you're like, come on, Jeremy, what what are you talking about? What's the difference? This This is the condition that breaks everything. And we need to try and identify it, especially in a world where it's quite difficult to know what is right and what is wrong and what is sin and what isn't. But this is, the, this is the cause of suffering. This is the cause of pain. This is the cause of death, the Bible tells us. And, and until Jesus opens our eyes, we don't even realize it's there. The Bible says that we are blind, that we cannot see. 
We don't know what is going on around us, and we don't understand why we're in so much trouble. So what is this original sin? What is the root cause of all of our trouble and our shame and our separation from God? Rebellion. Let me say it again, rebellion. And you might sit there going, oh, I'm not a rebel. I'm not rebelling against anyone. Well, let me put it into other words, independence. Rejection of God's authority over our lives. A desire to do things our way. What Satan got Adam and Eve to do when they ate that apple was to declare to God that they knew better than him what was best for them. They rebelled. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when we look at the the world today, when you listen to the predominant theme in music, in podcasts, on the socials, in politics, in identity politics, what do we hear? What do we see? A rejection of external authority. A rejection of constraints. An exaltation of self-determination. An exaltation of self-definition. Of self-moralization. What is that? but a blatant manifestation of the root sin of all of humanity. I know better than you what is good for me. Who are you to tell me who I am? Who are you to tell me what is right? I'm going to live out my truth. Unfettered by constraints and Propositions and constructs. As an aside, I'm, I'm thoroughly conv- convinced that atheists, whether they are professing atheists or, or simply functional atheists, living as though there is no God, don't actually believe that there is no God. And I, I know that they wouldn't agree with me, but when I look deeply, I don't think they do. I think rather... They can't stand the idea of there being a God. They can't stand the idea of an ultimate authority imposed on their will. They hate the idea that, that's, that they hate it so much that they, they run as far as they can from it, like children blocking their ears, shouting, la, 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 la while they're trying to ignore their parents. Either that, or they've never really given it any serious thought. It is just easier to be pacified by the worries and trappings of the world and get into the routines of ups and downs um, and never even consider the existence of God seriously. But anyway, back into this. this. This rebellion is what Jesus came to defeat, to smash, 
and to utterly destroy. So that is, that is sin with a capital S. And the Bible teaches us that sin leads to death. And we're all scared of death. I know as Christians sitting in here, you go, no, we're not scared of death anymore, Jeremy, but I'm talking about humanity. And if we look at humanity, we're all scared of death. And some of us will say we're not, but when it gets near, we all realize that we are. And there's probably been many reasons for that. Why are humans scared of death? Is it, is it the fear of the unknown? What actually happens when your heart stops beating and your brain stops functioning? Do I just go into a nothingness as though, as though I got knocked on the, the head and, and I, I have no recollection of anything anymore? Or does something else happen? Perhaps something that I really fear, like facing a God that I've been trying to ignore my whole life and having to account for what I've done. Is it separation from loved ones? Is it, is it the loss of control? We've been fighting against the loss of control our whole lives. And finally, something comes that comes to us all that takes that control away from us. Is it, is it the suffering that comes potentially with death that causes us to fear it? Perhaps it's all of those things. And, and so it's comforting for us to be told that Jesus has conquered sin and death. It's comforting because, because now we don't need to face death in, in the same way. We, we know that we'll have an eternity with him, that there'll be no pain, that there'll be no more suffering. Some of us imagine, ah, oh, but we'll be restored to our family. We'll have time with them. It'll be like old times back home, all of the good things that we remember. Those will all happen again. There'll be no more loneliness. It's comforting. And I think sometimes we mix the truth and we mix our hopes and fears into the truth and it gives us some kind of peace or assurance. But why does God hate death? I mean, it doesn't really affect him. He's never died. The answer actually is, is, is similar, but I think it's a, like a reflection. Not the pain bit, but it's a reflection of some of the things we fear. You see, the uncertainty that we feel, the, the fear of separation from our loved ones, are believe can really harken back to, to what happened when our parents sinned, because they were separated from their father. They were taken away from the closeness of relationship that, that we could see as being very good, the thing that God declared as very good at the beginning. And the whole narrative of the Bible is of a father that is restoring that separation. He's bringing his people back to him. And um, so the reason that God hates death is that it separates us from him. It separates his creation from himself. And he knows that the, the best place for us is in his presence and to be yielded to his will. We are his family. So we're afraid of losing temporary things, whereas God is concerned with, with our eternal condition. We think of death as the end of all the good things in this life, whereas God thinks of death as, 
an unnatural and unacceptable eternal separation of a creator from his creation. Jesus didn't come to die so that you can have more of the good things in this life. He came to die so that he could restore you to eternal communion with God. That is the good news. One Corinthians fifteen verse fifty five to fifty seven says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' last words were this It is finished. That phrase is decisive. And complete. And I don't think that Jesus had in his mind at that moment that he'd made a possibility, that he'd built a bridge that you could choose or not choose. Rather, I believe that what he had in his mind was each and every one of you. Each and every saint through all of history and into the future. He saw us. He saw us running blindly into the darkness, being driven by our rebellion, heads, heads away from him, running away from the cross, our desire to rule ourselves and to be in control of our own destinies. He saw us. And he said, Adam, I'll have you. Noah, I'll have you. Abraham, I'll have you. Isaac, Jacob, I'll have you. Joseph, I'll have you. Moses, Aaron, Samson, Ruth, David, Esther, Rahab, Ruth, Boaz, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Job, Ezra, John the Baptist, I'll have you. And he looked down from the cross and he said to Mary and to James and to Peter, I'll have you, and to Paul and to Timothy and the 3,000 at Pentecost, I'll have you. And to the centurion and to Joseph of Arimathea and to the countless others on that day, I'll have you. And to Constantine and to Augustine and to Thomas Aquinas and to William Tyndale and to St. Francis, I will have you. And to Mel and to Phil and to Jax and to Matt and to Vio and to Josh and to Seb and to Christian and to Emily, I'll have you. He looked at all of you from the cross and he reached out with his hand and he touched you and he opened your eyes. He spoke into your ears. He grabbed hold of you and he turned you around so that you could see him and he drew you to him as he died and he breathed out, it is finished. He saved you. He saved you that day 2,000 years ago. And, and when he 
had saved us, he said, it is done. All of the work, all of the redeeming work of God is finished. I know it happened for you at a point in your life. And I know it happened for the Old Testament saints at some point in their lives before Jesus was at the cross. And I know for many in the future, it's going to happen in the future. But for God, it happened there. He is all-knowing. And he is everywhere at all times. And time is not a fetter to him. He saw all of you. And he did all of his work there and then. There's a lot of scriptures for that, and I'm going to leave them up on the board. You can write them down. You can look them up. But that's how certain his salvation is. It's got nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with him perfectly completing his work on the cross. That's my big point. I I think it's a good one. And in two more minutes, I'm going to get through the other two. (laughs) And then we're going to celebrate that one big point. It really should cause our hearts to sing, but it doesn't end there. Christ's saving work isn't just about getting you uh, into heaven, into God's presence. Christ's saving work continues in us each and every day. And it's as secure and as certain as the fact that he saved you and brought you into his presence. The first point is what theologians call justification. It happens instantly. It's a legal position. It's a transaction that immediately moves us from a position of guilty to not guilty. And that status does not change ever. And the second aspect is what theologians call sanctification. This is a process. It's a process of aligning our thoughts, our words, and our deeds with that legal standing of not guilty and becoming more and more like Christ, which is the true nature of our new lives. And it's a topsy-turvy, up-and-down process filled with challenges and struggles and temptations. And if I could tell you about my life before salvation and then after salvation, it's not a pretty picture. It wasn't just all plain sailing, like I was an evil, bad person, and then Jesus saved me, and then I became amazing and awesome and self-righteous, and I made everyone annoyed because I did everything right, and I went to heaven. It was a mess. It was a big, jumbled up knot of ups and downs and disappointments and failures and knowing what the right thing was and doing the wrong thing and then staying up at night and praying to God because it sucked. But the general trend was upward. The general trend was to perfection. And this process is driven by the Holy Spirit. Just as in our old lives, our direction was determined by our own corrupted will, our new lives are directed by God's Holy Spirit. And we can see this in the life of Peter. We've just looked at how Peter kind of just duffed it the whole way through um, being a disciple until the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he went from um, impetuous coward to to authoritative, bold declarer of God's word who saves 3,000 in one sermon after being filled with the Holy Spirit. And throughout the New Testament, we see that the infilling of the Holy Spirit is an essential part 
of living a salvation life. It's not, it's not an optional extra for Pentecostals and charismatics or crazy people that like shaking and, and falling on the floor and crying. Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not for them. It's for everyone. It's for every single Christian. You can't live a Christian life without being filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit and living through His power. It is an essential component of salvation, and it is the driving force of the process of sanctification. Again, lots of scriptures for that. They're there. Take notes. Take a photograph. Do what you will, but I cannot read all of them. They are worth reading. And then there's the third aspect of salvation, which is an external testimony of this internal work. Romans 6, verses 3 to 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christianity has never been a private faith. I know sometimes it's hard to talk to our friends and family and work associates about it, but it has never been a private faith. I know I've heard people say it's, it's between me and God. It never has been, and it never should be. It's always been one of professing from the very beginning. We say that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. We don't say that glibly. We say that because that's the pattern of Scripture. Profession, confession, telling our story, telling God's story, spreading the good news, that is our mission as Christians. It's the very reason we're still alive and not with Christ. He leaves us here as his church to tell his good news to those that have not heard it. And he uses that story as a means of his grace and mercy that are described from the cross to reach them and touch them and turn them and open their eyes and, and allow them to see the beauty of his saving work. We declare as we descend into water that we identify with Christ's death. That we have died with him. And when we, raise us, when we are raised up from the water, we are, declaring, we are declaring that we are a new creation. We are raised back to life and we are now different. We no longer live for ourselves, but we're living for Christ. And we're living through Christ. The general pattern of all salvation in the New Testament includes this. The only example of someone who was not baptized as part of their salvation was the thief on the cross with Jesus. So unless you were saved and died that very second, you should get baptized. Lots of scriptures for this. They're on the board. Take a photograph, read them. They're worth it. So Christ saves us. And then he declares that what he has, then we declare what he has done publicly as a witness and a testimony to others. 
And thirdly, Jesus empowers us to live a salvation life in keeping with the fact that we are a new creation, an eternal being by the Holy Spirit. We don't get to pick and choose. Worship team, do you mind coming up? They're all a part of Christ's saving work. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, okay, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to avoid being filled with the Holy Spirit because it's scary, or I'm going to avoid water baptism because it's awkward and I don't like cold water, or because I was christened as a baby. You, weren't, you didn't believe in Jesus when you were a baby. You weren't confessing with your mouth. We need to be baptized as an external witness of what Christ has done inside of us. You do not get justification without sanctification. And you cannot be sanctified without living in obedience. And you will never be able to sustain an obedient life without the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot more. If you want to find out more, we, have, uh, we, we deal with it at Real Life School. Melanie has it on her heart to share more around the Holy Spirit. We can discuss it safely in life groups. You can go to Alpha. Um, there are many resources and books that we can recommend to help you with it. But how do we respond today? What do I want you to do today? Every Sunday, I want you. And first of all, today, I want you to respond with thankfulness with hearts and minds that are thankful to Jesus for what he has done. Secondly, if you've been putting off believers' baptism for whatever reason, can I challenge you? Can I challenge you to deal with what is really holding you back from that? Thirdly, if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, to the best of your knowledge, you should be, and you can be, and we'd like to give you an opportunity to to do that today. We'd like to pray for you. And finally, if you've been listening and you know that in your heart you're still running from Jesus, you're struggling with the idea of yielding your will to His, I'd suggest that you're not saved. And that's a hard thing to hear. But I reckon at the same time, He is calling you right now. And it's a bit scary, but I'd like it if we could pray for you and help you as he turns your face towards him and changes your heart from one of stone to one of flesh. And Mel Stewart, hopefully you can help us do that at the appropriate time. So Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you that as your church, we can stand confident and secure in your salvation, knowing full well that through the ups and downs, of our lives, through our struggles with our own selves and the struggles with all the things that come against us, through all of that, we are safe and secure in your hands, that you will never drop us, that you will never let us go, that we are rescued and eternally in your presence. And so, Lord, as we come and we worship you, I pray that you help us, that you inspire us, that you cause our hearts to burn, that, Holy Spirit, you you shape our will and you change our desires to become more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.